Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Stuart Tully, um, probably better known as Ben's dad, but I'm, I'm a history professor at uh, Nichols State University. And um, your teacher, Miss Tully, my wife, uh, she asked me to give you a little bit of background about Hamilton, to give you a background about Hamilton the man, a little thing about Alexander Hamilton uh, before you get into some of the literature of the Hamilton show. So with that said, um, I provide a little slideshow to go along with this, a little Google slide. So if you go ahead and click on it, you can go over, click over to Introduction, which is right now. So the stage show of, of, of Hamilton, um, it's been about, gosh, more than 12 years now, 13 years now, since Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, first performed the opening number at the White House Poetry Dram back in 2009. And generally in history, we like to use about 10 years as the, uh, you know, to be able to get some historical perspective about the show, which granted we're not going to be talking that much about the show, but still saying, I would say that Hamilton the show is now within the the history theme. We can talk about it with a little bit of uh, perspective about it. So we'll get into that. Um, let's get into Hamilton the Man, if you go over one slide. So Hamilton the Man. Uh, Hamilton the Man, if you listen to the introductory song, which I'm sure you've all heard, that does a pretty decent job of giving an overview of him before he gets to New York City. It does oversimplify a couple things, which I will get into. Uh, number one, he wasn't really an orphan. I mean, kind of. His mom does die whenever he's young, but his father is still alive. And for most of Hamilton's young life, his father is a kind of a distant figure. Uh, Hamilton knew of his father. Hamilton knew that his father was around. Um, his father, you know, lived in a different colony. At first, it was Nevis, where he was born in the Caribbean. Uh, then his dad kind of moves to some of the other Caribbean islands, does some stuff in Central America. So Hamilton knows his dad is alive. He knows he knows of his dad, but they are not close. They are not close. His father is not a real father figure. Uh, later on, whenever his dad does die, when Hamilton's in his late teens, early 20s, Hamilton's like, oh man, my, my, my dad died. That, that, that kind of stinks. But he, he's not very close to it. Uh, also, his mother is not a prostitute. His mother is not a prostitute. Uh, she was an abusive marriage. She had been in an abusive marriage and actually leaves her first husband to get with Hamilton's father, uh, basically to um, move in with Hamilton's father. Um, she never officially divorces her first husband. And so that's where we get into like the idea that um, he's an illegitimate child because technically he was. Uh, still, one thing the, the introduction does do a pretty good job of showing is that it does a very rough upbringing for Hamilton. Hamilton has a very rough upbringing for the time. Uh, the island of Nevis has very limited prospects for anybody, uh, let alone a man without honor, which we're going to get into quite a bit. We're going to get quite a bit into this idea of honor, which is something very important for understanding the um, the real history behind Hamilton and why he does some of the things he does, which seems kind of contradictory. So anyway, if uh, Hamilton, he does end up going to New York at the cusp of the Revolution. Uh, the introductory song does a pretty good job of explaining why. Basically, there's a hurricane on Nevis. He writes an article, gets a lot of attention, basically saying, hey, this, this kid from Nevis, he could probably get a good education. Let's send him over to the mainland colonies. He can get a better education. So he gets, uh, he gets to New York at the cusp of the Revolution. At the cusp of the Revolution... Uh, one thing the play does not do accurately, uh, he does not go to a bar one night and meet three of his best friends on the same day. Uh, the first person he does get to know is, if you go over one slide, that is Hercules Mulligan. Uh, Hercules Mulligan is an Irish tailor, later becomes a spy, uh, later becomes a spy for Washington. Honestly, with Hercules Mulligan, he mainly uses his slaves. He mainly uses his slaves, one slave in particular by the name of Cato, uh, to do most of the spying for him.
But still, that's the real Hercules Mulligan. Uh, yes, um, our corgi is named after Hercules Mulligan, but she's Heracles Mulligan because she's a girl. Uh, Hamilton also ends up studying at King's College, which later becomes Columbia University. Now, I, w- I should say, New York City is kind of unique during the Revolutionary War. Uh, it's the largest city in the colonies, by far. New York City is pretty much always the largest city in the colonies during the American Revolution and before. and also has a decent number of loyalists. Um, the demographics and geography of who all and who aren't loyalists, you know, who's for the revolution, who aren't for the revolution, uh, really differs. But because New York is a really big city, it, it tends to have a lot of wealthier people, which in turn have more of the business contracts with the various uh, companies that have the contracts in for the colonies. So most of your rich folks tend to be more loyalist. Actually, some of your poorer folks tend to be more loyalist, too. It's more your middling class that tends to have a bit more revolutionaries. Maybe we're on the lower side of middling. Now, once the war does get started, um, it is a big base. It is a big target for the English. Uh, basically, the English... Almost immediately, once the American Revolution started, they go for New York. They end up occupying it for most of the war. Uh, Still, New York City is Hamilton's base, uh, where he spends most of his time in the colonies. He becomes very affiliated with New York. Uh, Later on, after the Revolution, he moves into what's modern-day Harlem. Modern-day Harlem, uh, which is uptown of Manhattan in that time period. It was viewed as like farms. Of course, now it's a big middle of the city. Uh, Hamilton becomes very affiliated with New York City. Now, the main reason we go over one slide that Hamilton really gets known for any reason whatsoever is because he becomes George Washington's aide-de-camp during the war. Uh, George Washington was the most prominent uh, American during this time period, uh, pretty much the only choice anybody ever had for really anything <laughs> uh, when it comes to leadership. Washington was the richest American. Washington was the one who had military experience due to the uh, French and Indian War, Seven Years' War, whatever you want to call it. He is a very important uh, figurehead. And so uh, Hamilton becomes Washington's aide-de-camp. Aide-de-camp is basically the person who does the correspondence and the writing for uh, a general. Uh, Generals very rarely are on the the battle battlefield. Generally, they're kind of held back a little bit. Uh, They have to get orders about logistics, you know, who's going to move the supplies where, what are we going to do with that particular unit. And so as as Washington's aide-de-camp, secretary, correspondence guy, whatever you want to call it, this really raises his profile considerably. It really raises his profile so high that he's able to marry Eliza Shiler. Uh, If you go over one slide, you will see Eliza Shiler. Um, Eliza Shiler is the daughter of a prominent New York figure, uh, Philip, Philip Shiler. Now, I I should mention that uh, he also has a very flirtatious relationship with her sister, Angelica. Uh, They never have an affair. It is rumored uh, during his lifetime, but I think the the play really overdoes the the attraction between between, uh, Angelica and Hamilton. Um, also, I should mention, uh, the show makes it seem like Philip Shiler only has three, uh, three daughters. He doesn't. Uh, there are multiple Shiler children, including sons. So, yeah, um, there's really no chance of, uh, of the Shiler family, you know, going into ruin or not ruin, but, you know, these bad marriages or whatever. That's why Angelica can't be with Hamilton because, you know, she has to, she's the oldest and she has to keep the family line going. Uh, she's not the oldest. She's the oldest daughter, but there are plenty of other Shiler children running around there. I, I believe Philip has like seven or eight children. He's got quite a bit. 
Now, as an aide, he is able to make some new relationships. In particular, it's only after he becomes Washington's aide, if you go over one slide, he becomes familiar with John Lawrence and the Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, judging by his first name, Marquis is a uh, is a French title. He is noble. He is noble. And he's an aristocrat who's kind of a slumming it in the colonies, if you will. He's a very young man in this time period. Uh, Lafayette is probably the youngest of his crew. He's very wealthy, and he is just kind of slumming it in the in the colonies. He gets kind of caught up in the uh, Revolutionary Era. And then John Lawrence, which sure does a pretty good job of showing that he's very close to Hamilton. Um, he's also a son of a very wealthy South Carolina plantation owner. Uh, the show does a very good job of showing that John Lawrence is a abolitionist. He's somebody against slavery. Uh, it doesn't say the reason he is so against slavery and the reason he has the the clout to be able to take such a position is because his dad is very, very wealthy. In fact, the Lawrence family is one of, if not the largest slaveholders in all of South Carolina. Uh, we don't know what John Lawrence would have done if he would have inherited his father's land because, as the show shows, uh, he does die. He does die during the Revolution. Now, Hamilton is especially close to Washington. Uh, sorry, to, to Lawrence. He, he's close enough to Washington. They're, they're decent friends, but Washington is still very much an upper-level figure. He does become very close to John Lawrence, and if you look at uh, Hamilton's correspondence, he does lament his death. Now, the, the play does do a pretty good job of summarizing Hamilton's war experience. He is very close to Washington, uh, at least in terms of his patronage. But he still has this chip on his shoulder involving commanding service. Uh, that is seen as a way for upper mobility, for particularly for somebody like Hamilton. The idea that he will be able to command his own unit. That's a way to get prestige, to get honor, to really elevate in the, year, in the, in the world. Because he does, Hamilton is not a person who has class or honor the way that somebody like Jefferson does. Um, Thomas Jefferson, later on in the second act, that's probably the person that Hamilton fights with the most. Yes, I know Aaron Burr is the one who ultimately kills him. But um, Hamilton really clashes more with Jefferson than anybody else, particularly whenever um, they're both in Washington's cabinet, whenever Washington becomes president. But now is as good of a time as any to really get into the idea of honor. We need to talk about honor. Uh, this is a very good, big concept. If you go over one slide, you'll see honor. You'll see some of the duels. Uh, we don't have a good contemporary for this. When you're really getting into Hamilton and why he does a lot of the things he does, you need to understand honor and the way that they believed honor to exist during this time period. But this is huge in the life of a lot of these figures, particularly Hamilton. It explains some of his seemingly contradictory actions. Basically, to put this in the most basic perspective, money is not enough during this time period. Just having wealth, just having you know material possessions is not viewed as enough to be a very respectable individual during this time period. This is a bit of a holdover from Europe. Honestly, uh, in Europe, the, the, the elite or noble class is just seen to have money or just seen to have clout, to have authority, to have power, and they don't really have to earn it. In fact, in some parts of Europe, Spain in particular, if a noble person was too interested in business and too interested in with getting money, they could theoretically have their nobility stripped away. The idea that you know worrying, worrying about money, worrying about how you're getting money, is viewed as a lower class thing to do. If you're rich, you just have money. What goes further than money is things like breeding, or there, you could even get into divine right. 
Now, we've already seen this in elements of the Puritan mindset. Uh, that's a much older thing. Uh, Puritan mindset in terms of like predestination, but also the idea that they expect their uh, their elite members of society to be a high member of the community and also the church. Uh, but by the time we get to the American Revolution, uh, the religious element has a bit lessened. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you will see deism. Deism is what most of the founding fathers, including Hamilton, uh, believe when it comes to religion. They believe in a very distant God who is unwilling or possibly unable to interfere with human affairs. Uh, the, the, the classic example that the deists always use is God as the watchmaker. The idea that, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, and he set up all these natural systems, and then he just kind of let it be. You know, he just lets it go. Uh, God is very distant. Uh, he does not interfere with human affairs. Uh, the natural systems and orders do exist, but so does human agency. But you have to couple that with a sense that some people are not good enough and will never be good enough. Uh, for instance, uh, slaves. Let me go over one slide. You'll see slaves. Uh, they feel that African Americans or black people might have potential, you know, in highly regulated circumstances. Uh, they could theoretically become free or they could, you know, possibly own slaves of themselves. But they say the vast majority of African Americans, black folks, whoever to call them, they lacked honor. They lacked honor. Uh, they could not be an honorable person. Doesn't matter how wealthy an African American does. Doesn't matter how somebody like gets out of slavery. They could not get honor. For certain people, no matter what they did, they could not get honor. Now, this is fine for most of the founding fathers. Uh, they have a sense of property. They have a sense of place. They have a sense of of breeding and standing. Somebody like Washington, who becomes the richest man in the colonies, actually the old-fashioned way through marriage. Um, his wife, Martha Washington, is actually the really big landowner. But, uh, you know, Washington himself, he was, a, he was a surveyor. That was his job before he gets involved in politics and becoming the father of our country, is he surveys land and he realizes what land's probably going to be wealthy or what land's probably going to be good, so he buys it up before it goes on the open market. That's how he gets really rich. Or something like Jefferson. Jefferson comes to a very long line of, you know, old plantation owners. He's a pretty big slaveholder himself in Virginia, or John Lawrence even. John Lawrence, you know, he's he's the family of a you know he's part of the family of the one of the wealthiest, largest slave owners in all of South Carolina. That's why he's able to have these kind of positions of being an abolitionist, which otherwise might be seen as dishonorable. But that doesn't apply to Hamilton. Hamilton is really seen as dishonorable because of his origins. Uh, because of his origins, uh, you know, because of the fact he is from the uh, West Indies, the fact that his parents weren't married, uh, his dad is a bit of a ragamuffin. Um, no matter what he might achieve, he still has this chip on the shoulder that most of society doesn't believe he's good enough. So Hamilton, like most other people in the colonies, they view slavery as a status symbol. Um, he accepts it with his father-in-law and more than likely owns some slaves himself during his lifetime. In this show, they show that, you know, he's really kin with John Lawrence, who's abolitionist. Uh, Hamilton himself is more complicated. You know, he, he doesn't really want to own slave himself, but he recognizes, well, he, he understands the problematic nature of it. He understands the problematic nature of it. But he is, he wants to be viewed as respectable and elite in these time period because he's trying to make up for his lower position. And so that's why he's okay with, you know, his father-in-law slaves and also more than likely having some slaves himself, more than likely having some slaves himself. Um, he might not have bought them. It might have been inherited from his father-in-law, but still. 
he does indeed join manumission societies. Uh, manumission is a way that uh, they theoretically might get rid of slavery. They're not very radical. Uh, most anti-slavery stuff during this time period is more anti-slave owner and not pro-slave or pro-black people. Most of the time, these manumission societies, these abolition societies, anti-slavery societies, they're mainly against the idea of concentrated wealth of the slave owner. And a lot of times, it's because people, the people involved in these societies, they don't have the status of the slave owners in this time period. Now, the plan makes it seem like Hamilton is 100% anti-slavery, but it's way more complicated. And like I said, in reality, pretty much everybody in the show owns slaves of some sort. Um, Washington, ton of slaves. Jefferson, ton of slaves. Hercules Mulligan owned a couple of slaves. Uh, John's, John Lauren's family owned tons of slaves. Lawrence himself didn't have any, but and even though he was an abolitionist, uh, his family owns tons of slaves. Hamilton's had slaves from his father-in-law, and if he didn't directly own any, he was still very much surrounded by it and condoned it, at least for a while. So what's the easiest way to gain honor if you don't have it? Go over one slide. Marriage. The old-fashioned way. Marriage. Which is what Hamilton does. Shiler, uh, Philip Shiler, uh, you know, he's an elite member of the New York Society. Uh, he later becomes one of the first senators for New York. He is a very, very well-respected individual. Um, Shiler has multiple daughters and other kids, and is seen as a man of honor. So by marrying into the family, Hamilton gets a whole ton of respectability. Uh, yes, there is a double standard. The play does get into, you know, men are expected to mess around, uh, but keep it quiet on the outside. You know, the idea that Martha Washington names their feral tomcat after Hamilton because he's uh, with the ladies a lot. That is true, but it's expected for, for women of, of respect to not mess around with anybody before marriage. Now, it's, like I said, it's a double standard play. Now, here's a big question, though. A big question of honor is how do you deal with disputes between equals? How do you view between disputes between equals? And the answer there is dueling. Over one slide, dueling. The keyword there is equal. The keyword there is equal. If somebody is deemed beneath you, if somebody is deemed beneath you, if somebody beneath you insults you, you don't duel them. Duel the, dueling you know, implies a level of respect, a level of um, equality, a level of you're a person of honor too, and you've besmirched my honor. If it was somebody under you, you wouldn't duel them. You would just beat them up. Um, this is later on in history, but the best example of this actually happens on the floor of the U.S. Congress. Uh, basically, the canning of Sumner by Brooks. Uh, basically, it's, it's the... Um, Sumner is a senator from Massachusetts who's against slavery. Uh, Brooks is a congressperson from South Carolina. Uh, basically, Sumner insults Brooks' uncle, who is a cousin, family member, who is a also a congressperson from South Carolina, basically saying they like slavery a lot. Uh, Brooks thinks this is insulting and basically on the floor of the Senate uh, takes his cane and beats it over the head of Sumner, uh, mentally like incapacitating him. He could have very, very easily died. But the reason Brooks does this is because he says Sumner is beneath him. If it was equals, he would have challenged him to a duel. Uh, dueling was theoretically illegal, but uh, people did it, particularly between equals, particularly between rich people, rich people. So getting an invitation for a duel is a recognition, albeit a violent one, that you're a social equal. And theoretically, one could gain upward mobility through dueling. I need you to understand this. One could gain upward mobility 
through dueling. It basically, if somebody recognizes you as an equal, if you're a lower person, you could start challenging people to duels all the time. And theoretically, if somebody you know accepts your challenge, you're now on their level. So theoretically, it's an upward mobility. I mean, you're not going to get invited to dinner afterwards or anything, but honor was uphold. Um, I should mention that most duels do not end in a death. A lot of times it's just, do you have the bravery to do it? Are you willing to go out and show that you're willing to to die, theoretically, for this? For this? Uh, most duels do not end in death. Uh, for instance, uh, two, two dueling things I want to mention. Um... Is New Orleans and German dueling societies. We'll talk about them for a second. It's actually kind of interesting. Uh, New Orleans is a great example because New Orleans has their own version of French dueling, uh, which is generally to the blood. Uh, French dueling is not to the death. It's generally to the blood. It's to the blood, basically. Whoever bleeds first um, loses the duel. And so in New Orleans in this time period, they're complaining about these young gentlemen who are, you know, who maybe don't have a birthright or privilege or they haven't married into the right family. They don't have a lot of money. Uh, they're trying to claim their name by dueling. That's the idea that they're going to like duel everybody. And because it's not to the death, it's a way to theoretically go higher up in society. Uh, another one's a little bit later, but it's German dueling societies. Uh, these are scholarly societies. They actually happen in colleges where basically, um, <laughs> this is really crazy. Uh, they would, like, fight each other with certain swords, and oftentimes they would do it blindfolded, uh, basically showing that they are able to risk um, permanent maiming. Uh, this idea that they would try to get scars on the face, not not really lose an eye or anything or die, but just get scars on the face. A lot of times they would say, this makes you good husband material. The idea that you're willing to do violence. Not necessarily doing the violence, but doing this. Willing to. Now, I should mention very quickly, these are not um, just upper class things. Lower classes have their own versions in this time period. Uh, very briefly, you have things like eye gouging contests, which I'm not going to get into, or bare knuckle boxing fights, which if you see the picture right there, you'll see some of the lower class versions. So if you go later on, Hamilton only fights in the duel with Aaron Burr, but he involved with all, several before as a second or an aide. Um, Hamilton was generally not dueled against because most people didn't view him as respectable enough. They didn't view him as on the same social level. Um, you know, this is, uh, the show does mention it, like, but for instance, Thomas Jefferson does not think much of Alexander Hamilton. Um, probably the best example of this, I mean, granted, Jefferson doesn't really duel anybody because he's of a much higher social standing than anybody else. Is the fact that, you know, whenever they're having their beef, whenever they're, you know, they're not liking each other very much, um, Jefferson dismisses Hamilton uh, by calling him a Creole bastard. He's like, basically, you're a Creole bastard, insinuating that his illegitimate birth, but also maybe his race is not entirely white, which I should mention, Hamilton's race was almost certainly mostly white. Um, his dad was Scottish. His mom was from the islands, so you might go back a couple generations, but his mom was considered white. His mom was considered white. But it's still a very dismissive idea. This idea that um, Jefferson is like, Hamilton's not even worth my time. He's not an equal. But Hamilton does is interested in dueling. That's one thing. He's so obsessed with his honor because that's theoretically all he has. He doesn't have the breeding. He doesn't have like the wealth. Pretty much all of his wealth and position comes by his proxy to um, other people. Um, that's one of the reasons why he's such a crazy hard worker for things like the uh, the, the uh, Federalist Papers. You know, the other people they, they talk to, they are much higher level. 
But Hamilton writes so much because he's like, look, I got to work hard because that's the only way they're going to respect me. The only way they're going to respect me is if I really go for this very much. So ironically, um, the song The Ten Dual Commandments is pretty spot on. Uh, most people don't shoot or die, but it's the fact that you're willing to do so. Uh, dueling is also super legal in this time period, but that doesn't stop anybody. People generally um, look the other way, provided you are rich. Let's go over a little bit about a um, little bit about Aaron Burr because he's a very complex figure. If you go over one slide, you'll see Aaron Burr. Uh, in theory, Aaron Burr is Alexander Hamilton's foil, but in other ways, he is a very different individual. Very, very different individual. Uh, Aaron Burr is the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. That's something the play mentions briefly during Wait For It, but that's a much bigger deal. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is a very important early um, American preacher. Uh, later on in English class, if you haven't read yet, I think you generally read it junior year, you're going to read the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, yes, uh, yes, <laughs> he's that one. He's a very important individual. Um, so basically, you know, Edwards's mom comes from a line of really, really high um, you know, laurels, high honor. Um, his dad was president of what would later become Princeton. His dad is a college president. Uh, sorry, Aaron Burr's dad is a college president. And basically... And succeeded by his grandfather as the as a president of Princeton. So basically, like, yeah, there's a lot of of connections to what would later become Princeton. It's really no surprise that Burr is able to go Princeton because, like I said, his father and grandfather were both presidents of it's not Princeton yet, but the College of New Jersey, which would later become Princeton. Uh, he does indeed fight in the war. He does get involved with New York politics. He does have a scandalous marriage and that uh, whenever he starts talking to his wife, who will later become his wife, she is married to an English officer. But what's interesting is the things he does, he squanders a lot of the honor that Hamilton was so desperately trying to get. And I think that's what makes him very interesting, um, really, really interesting foil to Hamilton, is that Hamilton... Is, is trying so hard to get all these things that Aaron Bird has got and is squandering. You know, Aaron Bird squanders a lot of his good name and a lot of his uh, his family wealth and honor by some of the things he does. Yes, he does eventually become president, vice president of the United States. Aaron Bird does indeed become president of the vice, sorry, the vice president of the United States. Uh, but Jefferson does not trust him. Uh, Jefferson does not trust him. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, the two guys who hate Hamilton the most uh, are going to become president and vice president with each other. So uh, you know about the duel. I, I do want to mention, though, what happens to Burr afterwards. This is actually kind of interesting. Um, after a while, after he leaves office, and actually after he kills Hamilton, Aaron Burr is implemented. He's charged with treason and trying to start kind of a the, the proper term is filibuster, which you're probably more familiar with as like the things they do in the Senate where they talk a lot. Uh, technically speaking, a filibuster, originally speaking in America, are these kind of private individual armies that take over territory. Uh, for instance, there was a filibuster that took over Nicaragua for about, uh, for a while, about a year or two. So uh, filibustering was, you know, made illegal. You know, basically European powers didn't like the idea of private American armies coming over and taking their colonies. Uh, Aaron Burr theoretically is trying to do something, perhaps around Louisiana. Uh, he's arrested in New Orleans, uh, but definitely in Spanish-controlled Mexico. Um, that's a much longer topic that 
I'm not going to get into today, but uh, the U.S. was really interested in Mexico, particularly like Texas, long before Texas ever became a U.S. territory. And um, it's technically breaking this filibustering rule is is a misdemeanor, but Jefferson doesn't like Burr, and so he calls it treason. He calls it treason. He's like, basically, hey, um, the former vice president of the United States has been accused of treason. It was definitely a political thing, 100% a political thing. Throws the book at him. Aaron Burr does indeed uh, get off, uh, but he decides to leave the country for England. Basically, he leaves the U.S. for England. Um, problem is, while he's in England, he runs up a lot of debt, and so he comes back to New York to quietly practice law and kind of hide from his creditors. Um, and fun fact, in 1833, at age 77, he, wary, he marries a wealthy widow who's about 20 years younger than him. And uh, she realizes pretty quick that he's really just in it for the money because he's got a lot of debt and he's trying to hide and he doesn't really care for her. He just like wants to get all of her money because so that's what that's what's going on. <laughs> and so she sues him for divorce and probably kind of as a you know kind of rub it in on Aaron Burr. Uh, guess who she hires as her divorce lawyer? That's right. Alexander Hamilton Jr. Alexander Hamilton Jr., who is following his father's footsteps of being a lawyer. Uh, the divorce is finalized on the day he dies in 1836. On the day he dies in 1836, uh, that's when Aaron Burr dies. And that's when his um, divorce is finalized. So if you go over one slide, let's get into the legacy of Hamilton kind of quickly. Uh, despite being on the $10 bill, Hamilton has a very complex legacy after he dies. Uh, the Reynolds pamphlet, which the show talks about, pretty much kills him politically, uh, pretty much kills any sense of honor that he has. The fact that he admits to an affair, uh, there's one thing to have affairs, which were viewed as unsightly, but uh, something that it was, you know, men of power theoretically did. <clears throat> um, he, you know, he it really makes him into a political pariah. There's no way he's going to become president. Uh, he has been on the currency since around the time of the Civil War, which makes sense. He was a Secretary of the Treasury, um, especially because of his political economic policies advocate for like government helping big business. Him being on the currency makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make so much sense for Andrew Jackson, who hates the banks and doesn't like the Bank of America. Um, there we go. But but otherwise, if you go over one slide, uh, he's kind of forgotten for a long time. He's kind of the forgotten founding father. Uh, the thing he's most remembered for is like his death at the hands of Aaron Burr. The fact that a sitting vice president killed somebody in a duel, that's eh, always something kind of interesting. Uh, maybe the, the Reynolds pamphlet by like hardcore history nerds such as myself, uh, but most people don't really think of him that much. He's not a founding father who is idolized or deified as much as Thomas Jefferson or George Washington. So why does he come back? Well, in a word, if you go over one slide, Ron Chernow. Uh, basically, he is an author, he's a journalist, he's not a classical historian. Uh, he's been writing a lot of books about a lot of business leaders, so of course, and political leaders, and so it was only logical that Hamilton would come up. Um, Hamilton had been written about a lot before, and, and there's nothing new that comes out of Chernow's work. Uh, Chernow's work is not very new. Uh, for those of us historians, there's really nothing in this book that's like super new or revolutionary. Uh, it becomes moderately popular, though. All of Chernow's books are moderately popular. And the, the paperback version was picked up by Lin-Manuel Miranda um, when he headed on vacation. So if you go over one side, you'll see Lin-Manuel Miranda. His first show, In the Heights, you've probably seen it now. They made a movie of it. 
Um, he's a guy from Washington Heights in New York City, son of Puerto Rican immigrants. He loves hip-hop. He loves musicals. Um, his first show in the Heights had kind of been in production since he was in college. Uh, finally gets on Broadway. He becomes viewed as a, as a wunderkin, kind of a boy wonder. Uh, he starts doing a couple other musicals. Uh, nothing that he's really writing. He just, like, bringing on the musical. So he claims while he's reading about, he's, he's taking a flight to, uh, to the Caribbean to like kind of take a vacation after his first big show. And he claims after reading his, the first chapter, where he doesn't realize that Alexander Hamilton wasn't American, he was from Nevis. Well, he was American, he just wasn't from the colonies. Well, he wasn't from the original 13. He was from the Caribbean. He's like, wow, this kind of reminds me of an immigrant story. Let me turn it into a mixtape. And then uh, he begins working on the introductory song in 2009. He performs it at the uh, White House Poetry Dram, which is Obama's first year. Uh, you can get into the fact that Obama and Lima Miranda are very well connected. If you look at their pictures, they very much um, get get linked together. And so, like, it's kind of reflected in the show. Uh, in fact, even Obama does a version of a Hamilton song later on. Now, I should mention, um, there have been other American history musicals, like a lot of them. Um, seriously, there have been a ton of American musicals about, sorry, musicals about American history. Um, maybe some they try to update with modern music. Uh, Hamilton is way more successful than anything else. Hamilton is way more successful than anything else, but there are others. So with that, if you go over finally, uh, I'll, uh, you know, kind of get to the conclusion. Uh, hopefully this kind of gives you a bit more of insight about Hamilton the Man and also some background as you understand the show. Uh, I know Miss Telly is going to be focusing more on the kind of literature aspect of it, but I do want you to know some history. And if you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask me. Feel free to ask me. You can ask me through Miss Telly or you can email me at um, stuart.telly at nichols.edu. Um, Always happy to um, answer questions about this sort of stuff. Uh, so with that, this is Dr. Tully for Miss Tully's English class. Um, hoping you have a good one. <laughs>